And you've found the Sassy Thoughts Podcast. I'm Matt Cameron. And I'm Sam Arnold. Sam, exciting topics today. I think we're going to kick it off by talking about tech IPOs. So this week, who listed? Coinbase. Coinbase came out. What do, what do you know about Coinbase, Sam? Well, I know a little bit about Coinbase. Uh, I'm not one of the lucky people that got to invest early, obviously, and I'm not one of the uh, even luckier people that bought a bunch of Bitcoin early on. But I've worked with them in the past in different companies, really smart people there. And only recently has it actually clicked to me what their business model really is. It seems smart. I mean, they make money when Bitcoin goes up. They make money when it goes down. Uh, I mean, I don't know. What's your take on it? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. So a couple of observations uh, about these these listings. So Coinbase is a direct listing. And I also saw that Squarespace, another interesting company, is going to do a direct listing. For those people who don't know, basically, it means you cut out the middle person. So these investment bankers that basically say, yep, I promise we're going to list you and, you know, we're going to set the price at uh, 100 bucks, which means that your enterprise value is, you know, $5 billion on the day we list. And, and if it doesn't make it, to 5 billion, we're going to underwrite it. We're going to make up the difference. That's a risk we'll take. And the reason they do that is because they get a whole bunch of fees for doing so. But a direct listing means there's none of that, right? So they basically just take it straight to market. And um, I'd like to talk about Coinbase, the company, just to make sure everyone understands it. So essentially, it's a place where retailers like you, me, Sam, we can go there and we can trade in cryptocurrency without knowing what the hell we're doing, which sounds dangerous. We can go in there and they take a clip on the ticket, don't they? And as it turns out, they actually take a fair margin. They, I don't think anyone takes more of a margin on a trade than they do. It's a pretty good business model, right? You know, one of the things I love about you, Matt, are all of the little Matt-isms that I hear that are common elsewhere, but, but not in my life outside of my interactions with you. Clip off the ticket. Is that a common expression? You know what? Uh, where I come from, uh, God knows where that is. Yes, yes. Clip of the ticket. Exactly. <laughs> I love it. I'm going to use that. Yeah. So they clip the ticket. Probably something like four percent or something on every trade. Something like that. Anyway. Uh, but the interesting thing about a direct listing is you don't really know what the price is going to be, and they use this marketing term called the reference price, which is kind of hilarious. So what they do is they say, look, the reference price, what we think this stock uh, is going to, you know, be listed at, is 250 bucks completely meaningless. No one has guaranteed that price. It, like, it doesn't mean nothing. So I did a little research on reference prices. And if you get a reference price right, it means that futures in that should trade around 5%, meaning that the variance on that reference price should be give or take, you know, somewhat smaller than 5%. So anyway, coin opened at 381 bucks. So way above the reference price. Everyone's like, oh, but here we are like three days later and it's at 341. So if you compare it to this completely made up bullshit reference price of 250, it's up 36%. But tell that to the people who actually bought it on the open and they're now down 10% in two days. So. It seems like that always happens. I've always heard to never buy a tech stock on the day of the IPO. Yeah, yeah. be interesting. We should get someone to look into that. Like, Let's look at the the IPO bump, what happens? Because the psychology of investing is people always underestimate the impact of good news and overestimate the impact of bad news, right? So um, if a you know some some terrible news comes out and and the and the stock 
immediately collapses is because people haven't time really had time to think about what it means. So oftentimes it's a good um, uh, investment strategy to buy on that first big dip because it's usually bigger than it should be. Right. But in any case, so they're out there, very interesting company. Uh, we'll see where it goes, but uh, they're certainly not alone in that space. And as I said earlier, they seem to be the highest margin company, but kudos, kudos to those VCs that went in early. I think Andreessen Horowitz was um, one of the very early believers in both crypto and Coinbase who would have made out like bandits on this. So good for them. Yeah, I always wonder what the experience is like as for, to be the employees there. I mean, the finances of it, I don't really all fully get. I have to think about, well, what's it actually like to go through it? Uh, I think I've never had a big exit. That's what everyone's dream is when they go into tech, that they're going to be somewhere and get some stock options and make out like a bandit themselves. Uh, I know, Matt, you, you came pretty close, right? Yeah, I mean, I was early enough at Salesforce to have a bit of fun with that. The really nice thing about when a company goes public is it's it's now worth cash right so uh, there's usually a holdout period so maybe you can't sell your stock for six months or a year but you know what it's worth right and uh what's lovely about that is is if you choose to exercise your options you can immediately sell it on the open market right so then you can set aside some money for the tax bill you're going to get but for most of the people listening to this who work for privately held company if you if you leave that company and you exercise those options a, there's going to be, if it's an increase, there's going to be a tax bill next year that you probably weren't anticipating. And B, you ain't got no cash. So unless your company is saleable on the secondary market, right, which is another thing, just Google it if you're not sure of that, um, you're kind of screwed. You've got to have a bunch of money available to pay that tax until the thing actually lists. So it's super exciting. And look, I was fortunate to hang out with those folks who joined Salesforce early and got their stock at two bucks. It listed at 15 bucks and then, you know, has been many, many multiples of that since. So that's, that's exciting. Uh, you know, the, the, the only thing that's interesting that I'm seeing as a trend now, ever since, um, Mark Zuckerberg did it, is this trend of CEOs to maintain control. And they do this in a couple of ways. They create different types of stock, voting shares. So their stock, preferred stock, might be of a class where for every share they have, they get 10 votes. And for, for the rest of the, uh, the, the plebs, they'll get single stock, single vote shares. And so if you look at um, Squarespace, uh, from what I understand, um, their CEO will have 68% control after they list. And if you think, do you remember, Sam, another couple of companies, big names with some interesting outcomes that, that had CEOs that had control? Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> Actually, the We company, which was WeWork, right? Uh, their, their CEO and Uber, Travis Kleinick, they both had controlling interests in their company, um, you know, uh, up to the point where they either you know went public or could have gone public um and that's that's a challenging dynamic depending on who the ceo is right uh, i mean zuckerberg's managed to get through quite well but with those other two companies it's quite problematic um so i don't know if i was an employee at a company that was looking to list and the ceo was going to maintain control i would be a little bit nervous that's my perspective well i everybody knows somebody in tech who managed to uh to, to have a great exit at a company they were at. And you someone at CrowdStrike, for example. It's hard not to be envious of those folks. You always want to you know, try to pick a company that you think has at least a chance, at least a chance of making it big. 
Uh, so yeah, kudos. It's nice to see some nice win stories for some people there. I hope that they don't spend it all in one place. I think a lot about, well, who's going to be the next big juicy Coinbase Squarespace IPO. And some of the apps that have been surging lately, I don't know if you've noticed this, Matt, are around privacy, privacy specifically around communications, apps like Telegram, Signal, ProtonMail. Have you seen these? I have. So I remember ages ago, someone got me to sign up for Signal. And every now and then I get a notification that says, Sam Arnold has just joined Signal. I think, well, that's not very private, is it? Now I know, <laughs> I know he's using the app. But yeah, um, it is interesting. Um, and I think two, two dynamics that I find interesting here. Number one, there are communities or sections of the community that are being pushed off mainstream social media platforms. They need somewhere else to go. Um, and WhatsApp's owned by Facebook. That freaks out a lot of people, right? Um, and so I think, yeah, we're seeing a lot of people head into these platforms, either for the ability to have freedom of speech um, and, and, and be able to hang out with people they want to hang out with. But the thing that's interesting to me is if you go to Signal, where you can have a group of like up to 200,000 people in, in a group, so it's pretty serious, you can create your own little echo chamber if you want and not have the algorithm tell you what to look at or interesting uh, or be interested in. Which I, I support that because it reminds me of the old internet. I miss the old internet. The old internet uh, before there were, was, were more central controls when it was just a wild west and good Lord, I think a lot of people today don't really remember, weren't even around for what the internet was like on, you know, news, uh, Usenet, like uh, yep. early message boards. Yep. Uh, you, you had the best and worst of humanity, but it was raw. It was real. And I don't think a lot of those things went away. I mean, you can spackle over them, but maybe there's a lot of value in having some exposure, some limited titrated exposure to the real, you know, inner workings of human beings. I, I, I remember those times. And back in the day, they had the bulletin board system, the BBS. And I remember the most powerful, um, the, the powerful role in our community was the sysadmin, the systems administrator, the BBS, because I remember there was one called The Cave. Now, for those playing along at home, this is when the internet was pure text, green screen, right? So there was no graphics. This is how freaking old I am. Uh, and you'd log in. I could type faster than the text would appear on the screen because it was like a 300 board modem. But the great thing about these BBSs at the time we thought is that there was super anonymous. You could have conversations about everything. But the one thing was, if you went to this bulletin board called The Cave, who, who do you think managed The Cave, Sam? That's right the bear i was going to say the troll no it was the bear the cave bear the bear was the sysadmin and if he didn't like it boom you're out gone you never came back that was that fun times fun times so yeah no it's you're, you you make an interesting point the the rise of the privacy app um you know uh encrypted mail has been around forever but i noticed that proton mail if you've heard of them they've got like 50 million users right now uh it's crazy and then i saw that signal um their their user their downloads according to Aptopia went up ten times in the last quarter of last year. Ten x. Wow! Holy crap! It's massive. So yeah, interesting. But anyway, on the on the subject of privacy, uh, there's something you know I wanted to talk about today, and that is this this new bill being introduced in California, which is called the Silenced No More Act, which is about 
getting rid of non-disparagement agreements. Have you ever seen one of those suckers? I have. I've actually signed a couple of those before in my past. It's one of the things that's not too uncommon when you're leaving a company. You sign some paperwork, usually, especially if you're going to get some severance or something. And part of the paperwork you sign is that you're not going to say anything mean about them to anybody else. And Sam, uh, <laughs> Sam just between us friends, did you regret ever signing one of those things? Is the one you're like, God damn it. I wish I didn't have to sign that. Honestly, I'm trying to think if the fact that I signed it factored into any of my actions going forward from that point. I, I'm not sure that they did. I think I still felt pretty free to, to speak freely. Funny. That's why I never ask anyone to sign a non-disclosure agreement because they're completely worthless. Uh, <laughs> just, you know, a secret something you tell one person at a time. So yeah, look, why do I not like non-disparagement agreements? Because basically it's using a financial incentive to shut someone up because something bad may or may not have happened at work. I hate it. You hear it public profile all the time. People pay people off to silence them. And this is the, the workplace equivalent of that. And I'm like, if you're behaving well and ethically, you don't need a non-disparagement agreement. So look, I can tell you, you join Sassy Sales Leadership. You don't have to sign one of those suckers on the way out. Absolutely not. So for me, I'm all, I'm all supportive of it. I see that Pinterest CEO is all behind it and good for them because I've got a bit of makeup work to be done uh, in that area. Um, you know, there was a bit of drama uh, about folks being silenced. So they've turned the corner, it would seem. So um, I'll give two thumbs up uh, to that for sure. Yeah, we need to do the same thing with non-compete agreements next. Yeah, that'd be nice. I, I thought you might bring that up. I mean, that's such a tricky one. You know, I I, I don't like non-compete agreements. I think you should sign a document that says that you won't share trade secrets and you should quite rightly get the crap suit out of you. Um, did someone say Waymo? Uh, if you do take uh, company secrets to other organizations, but yeah, non-competes, come on now. Uh, that's, that's that's not right. Um, but kind of- I will I will Go say, ahead. I think the, the one time that has actually affected my life was uh, my very first job. Actually, my, fir my first and second job at uh, Circuit City. And I later went to Best Buy. And uh, it was fine. I wasn't, I wasn't allowed back in that Circuit City. <laughs> I always <laughs> wondered, what, what do they think I'm, I'm telling over there? Like the, the secret to closing protection plans? I, I really, it blows my mind to this day. But I don't know. You know that that's where all the money is made is a, is a, is a tell, Sam. It's a tell, those protection plans. Uh, is Circuit City publicly listed? I don't know. Are they, are they a public company? Oh, they went bankrupt. I don't know what they're doing now. I think they're still kicking around like their, their IP and brand has been purchased. But See, no, is, I mean, there's no Circuit City anymore. Sam, take some self-responsibility here. You crushed them. They went into the ground. You told Best Buy their secrets. All those post-sales warranties, you, you, you <laughs> drove them to the floor. Yeah, you know, they were doing well when I was there and I was their top rep. They didn't call it that, but... <laughs> I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised. So, all right, all right. Let's 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 segue into something a little bit different. CEOs taking political stance. So I used to work for Mark Benioff, right, at Salesforce. And he is well known uh, as having a big uh, stake in the ground around compassionate capitalism. And whatnot. So I love your perspective. There, there have been some very high-profile instances recently where CEOs have uh, made public statements and even taken action uh, around potential or actual um, new legislative movements in different states. What's your perspective on this? I am a little, hmm, I'm divided. Okay, I'm divided. I think the one thing that you and I would agree on is that 
certainly CEOs are private people and in their roles in companies, companies can have their own cultures and perspectives, and they're certainly free to be as political as they want. I don't think there should be legislation, for example, to stop CEOs from sharing a political opinion. I'm not sure if anybody's proposing that, but that's just an example of something I wouldn't support. And I think you and I would agree that the question of can CEOs or should CEOs be allowed to be political and foster a kind of political bent at work? Yes, I think that they should be allowed. Where I think that people do not fully appreciate the negatives are when they are considering the kind of cartoonish version of the uh, political dynamic at work versus the real version of the political dynamic at work. So the sort of cartoonish version that people often pretend is the case is that there's this side called good and they're on it. And then there is this side called evil that they are not on and only their enemies and people that they hate, despise, and would never want to work with are on that side. And it is completely obvious who's on what side and what issue is on what side and what side of each issue to be on, to be on the good side and avoid the bad. But that's the cartoon. And the reality is issues are multifaceted. Uh, you can, you know, you might, for example, love and support uh, immigration, but maybe disagree with a particular policy. And if you are in an extremely politically charged working environment, that can put a target on you and make, you, make it very difficult for you to, to want to show up to work um, in that kind of environment. And especially if you happen to disagree with the CEO, that puts you in a precarious situation, especially if you're looking at trying to get promoted, you're trying to be well-liked in the organization. I mean, what I'm trying to say is it creates an oppressive atmosphere that I, I don't think people fully appreciate. Yeah, it's really it's really interesting because you know me, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm left of center and um, uh, you know, the sorts of things that Benioff would advocate for I would probably advocate for. Uh, however, I'm also somebody who's uh, you know actively trying to get better in my understanding and allyship around inclusion. And you make a really interesting point um, because you're right. There's no black or white in terms of um, the way we think about uh, definitively uh, what side of an issue you want to be on every single time. And so uh, the way I've been thinking about it, and, and I think you're having some influence on my thinking, is that. Uh, the value should be stated. The cultural norms need to be documented. Like this is how we behave. This is how we think. This is how we treat each other. And therefore, I'm totally cool if a CEO goes into the public and says, hey, the values at our company are being infringed by this legislative action. And I need to protect our employees from this because as stated, our values would be infringed. Um, where does the line get drawn, right? Because there are some issues that won't have been documented or don't fit neatly under one of those cultural norms. And therefore the question is, should the CEO then make a stand or not? I don't know. I don't think they have any responsibility to take a stand other than to protect their people. That's what I think. I think um, that's well said. And I also think too that, let's be honest, like if, if CEOs were being hurt or their bottom line was being affected negatively in some way by some politics they, they may have, they're not going to voice them. So, of course, we're only going to hear about the politics of different public people like Benioff, for example, uh, that will be conducive to their company uh, continuing to profit and thrive. 
right? So I, actually, you know, I think you're underselling it. I think Benioff has a specific example. He's taken some very risky political stances, like he did in Indiana around the Religious Freedom Act that he felt was was would would hurt his LGBTQ plus employees. And I'm sure Salesforce lost some business as a result of that sort of stance. So um, I I just think you're being a little um, I think there are CEOs out there that will stick their neck out uh, and 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 be prepared to lose shareholder value in terms of the in the short term as a result of that. I think some of you them. might be right, and I'm open minded. But I mean, for that specific example, I think it would be a lot more risky for him to have come out in support of that legislation right. <laughs> than to come out against it. I think he he and every other CEO in Silicon Valley were pretty much unified in that perspective. And I don't know if it was a little, I'm waiting to see something a little bit more controversial. I, I want to see something harder. I want Benioff, if you're listening to this, okay, he probably is. Who isn't? Then uh, I want something controversial. I want something powerful, um, something like, that's really- Closing the borders to New Zealanders. That would, that, that would be, you know- a, a, Overdue. Overdue. Yeah, I think we're going to All right. Speaking about getting in the country, do you want to talk passports? Passports? You know, I lost my passport. I got another one in a day one time in the uh, passport office in Atlanta. I was shocked. That is like one government agency that is able to function quite quickly and efficiently. And that's not what you're talking about, are you? Are you going to tell me you got one in a day from a guy behind a dumpster somewhere? But anyway, that's impressive. <laughs> okay. All right. We're talking, we're talking vaccine passports. Vaccine passports. So, look, I'm going to throw you under the bus again. What do you think about this idea? Oh, boy. You know, I think we're going to leave, leave this episode and people are going to have some impression that I'm some kind of crazy QAnon conservative. I'm definitely not. Uh, but I am someone who is a, a little bit paranoid of handing a whole lot of power to people, as I think, for example, anyone who wasn't in support of uh, uh, Mr. Donald J. Trump uh, probably can be reminded of how they felt. And I think that's really how you have to look at any big issue like vaccine passports. Imagine your worst enemy. Okay. Mecca Donald Trump Jr. Jr. in the year 2049, and he has a computer for a brain now. It's even worse. And now he has control of the vaccine passport system. Uh, you know, is that really something that we're comfortable with? Our access to services being turned on and off um, at the discretion of a, uh, a government body, body? I don't know. I, I think it's dangerous. I also think it's kind of inevitable. I'm not so naive to think that this isn't going to happen. It's going to happen. I just really hope the worst case scenario doesn't doesn't uh, unfold. That's all. I think it'll go slower, perhaps you know, relieve your angst a little bit slower than we than those the supporters would want because agreeing on a standard is going to be so hard. You've got IBM and a bunch of other companies moving fast, but everybody wants to be you know agree on the standard, but they're all going to have their own perspective. So getting one in the U.S. will be one thing. Getting a global one, good luck. Um, you know, uh, the way I'm thinking about it is that uh, I, I hope that for the most part, it'll be a bit like clear for those of you who have seen those sort of quick check through things at airports where, look, frankly, it, it is a classist system because if you can afford to pay for clear, then you can walk past um, the, the TSA and get in really quick. Um, if you don't have clear, then they're going to look at you and they're going to make sure that certain things are true and then away you go. Vaccine passports, 
I imagine could be the same. Like if you have one, you go straight through. If you don't, then they're going to take your temperature and maybe even get you to do a PCR test or whatever else. So I feel like there may be a middle ground. I think if it's a hard line so that, you know, you cannot travel on a plane unless you have one, that's trickier, you know, that's trickier. Uh, so I don't know. Well, we'll let's, let's check in on this in three months, Sam, because I think it's a very interesting uh, topic. But if you can't go anywhere, maybe you could go there virtually. Oh, yeah. You know, I wanted to talk about this one. So I noticed recently that Facebook's Oculus Quest has uh, been out for a few months. It's like 300 bucks. And most recently, they've actually opened up an app store for developers to build on. And I took a look at it. I just really wish it would take off. And VR, I think most everybody would agree, has not really taken off. And it's kind of surprising. I mean, everyone's been stuck at home for COVID. You think this would be the perfect time for people to, to go pick up an Oculus or, or something like it and, uh, and, and veg out in, in VR. But, you know, you just really aren't seeing it. I mean, Matt, do you know anybody that is into VR at this point? You know, like my daughter has got uh, an Oculus headset and her and her sister pick it up, uh, half-sister, pick it up like once a month and sort of tap around the lounge, you know, and then put it down and that's it. And it's funny you should say that at the pandemic, as you said that, it made me think that I wonder if there's a correlation between the sale of marijuana and VR headsets. I don't, we should look that up. Is there like, maybe they track, I, I don't know, but- uh, I have to think not. it's a similar demo. <laughs> I, I just, I don't know. My understanding is that the dispensaries around the US have had a very good trading period the last six months or so. Anyway, I would have imagined it would track, but yeah, it's it's weird to me. Let, let's see, um, you know, there have been a bunch of companies that, there's that company, is it Magic? Magic Eye, I can't remember what it's called. There's one that's been around forever that's been making promises about all sorts of incredible uh, stuff. Um, and uh, they really haven't busted out yet. Uh, do you know Magic Leap. Magic Leap, there you go. Um, they've been promising some big stuff for, for, for some time. But what is interesting to me though is, is the commercial application, which does seem to be having some success. Um, I was looking at, you mentioned Oculus. I was looking at what they've been up to. One of the things I think VR can do very, very well that we can't th see through a 2D screen is the feeling of, or, or the ability to create empathy. And so a good example, which I thought was fascinating, was um, emergency room situation, triage situations where you've got a very, very distressed parent brought their child in and the uh, attending physician needs to make some really on the spot decisions under that high stress environment. You just can't get that working on a dummy, you know, to have like, to feel like there's a parent shouting in your ear, save my baby, save my child. This is pretty cool stuff. So I think that where it's really going to blow up is in commercial application. It's true. And this isn't to be confused with AR, right? Um, alternate no, or augmented VR. reality. I'm talking immersive VR. Uh -huh. True. Yeah. So well, just to remind people too, if they didn't see it, I mean, Microsoft did recently get a $22 billion contract with the US Army for AR headsets. So maybe AR is going to be a lot bigger first. Explain I that for people. What's, what's the difference between augmented reality and virtual reality? Okay, so augmented reality is more of an overlay on reality around you. So you can imagine, like, you can still see through the goggles or the, the, the glasses. Like, Google Glass is an example of augmented reality, which rumor has it is going to be making a reemergence pretty soon. And 
that makes sense to me because I think the big bottleneck with VR is really more around the controls. And this is complete gut instinct. I might be wrong on this, but something I've noticed when I used uh, Oculus in the past, for example, you get these two kind of sticks to hold and uh, you know, there's motion sensors in them and stuff. Uh, and it makes sense for certain kinds of games. Like I noticed in the Oculus Quest app store, I went and took a look and all of the main apps are really games. I mean, the most popular one's called Beat Saber. And it's like you're holding two lightsabers and you're kind of hitting notes similar to like a guitar hero or rock band in time with music. And people really like it. it's fun. And I understand that. But outside of that, like for commercial applications, I mean, it's impossible to type. For example, you can't type with two sticks in your hand and typing is a, a really a necessary part of work. So I, I don't know. I, I can see like the AR doing better because you can still see your hands. You can still type. You can still do like walk around in the real world. Walking around in the virtual world, you also can't do too well. There's not any really good, uh, like they, there's a few different approaches to, um, what do you call it? Like treadmills, like, but you need a treadmill that can go in any direction, right? Not just right. forwards and backwards. So there are some attempts. I think we're really early. Once they nail the controls, I think VR is going to take off. But I mean, have you seen any good examples of uh, maybe commercial applications for for VR outside of that uh, that one training use case? Yeah, I mean, a couple of things like um, Hilton Hotels uh, was an example where they have a you know a, a virtual um, um, guest arrive and the guest says something to you or they they get emotional because something didn't go right and then you've got like oh you've got to respond to that like what do you do when they say that the room was filthy or whatever else so that that's a good one again it comes down to uh, recreating an emotional experience I think is is really valuable. Um, the the other one I've seen is in training um, dentists, technicians, um, surgeons, and whatever else uh, having uh, a, a virtual experience um, in in actual VR, right? And and I'm sure that's a little bit clunky because the you know fine grain stuff right now, but like the Hilton example is great, you know. And the other thing the other thing um, on VR that I had I saw quite a while ago and it must have advanced substantially was Microsoft. Teams style application where we're having a virtual meeting, and instead of looking at two squares, I'm literally looking at you as though you're sitting across the room from me. I think that is going to be very exciting in the next five years because as we now are trending to you know this hybrid, remote, and in person, if I can feel like I'm sitting across the room, and the way the technology works is I'm literally looking in your eyes as I speak to you. And I'm hearing you with audio fidelity. So someone's on my right-hand side. I hear them out of my right ear. That's cool. You know, there actually is a really, one of the more popular, in fact, let's just do it now. We don't have a theme song for it yet, but Sam has an app that he wants to share with our audience. Are you ready, Matt? Ready, let's do this. Okay, we'll get the jingle going later. If anybody listening, Mark Benioff, uh, maybe if you know somebody that can make a good jingle, feel free to send it my way. Uh, okay, I actually want to talk about VR chat. Have you seen VR chat? Okay, it's exactly what you think it is. It's, it's a VR chat. It's actually similar to what you just described, only it's much more ridiculous because it's basically a, uh, a bunch of, you know, 4chan, okay, maybe 4chan is a little bit harsh, um, different kinds of internet communities that have a fondness for anime and video games and, you know, Japanese culture and things of that nature, uh, cartoons. They make an avatar, uh, an avatar of themselves, a three-dimensional VR avatar. And it's just a chat. Like there, you can do little games and stuff, but the, the main purpose of VR chat is just to get together with people, walk around in these virtual landscapes and just talk about stuff. And 
I was introduced to this. A lot of uh, famous YouTubers, uh, people like PewDiePie and stuff on, on YouTube, they have posted quite a few videos. If you want some, uh, if anybody, anybody in the audience is not familiar with this, just look up VRChat on YouTube. Look at some of the more popular ones. There are some pretty funny videos of different interesting stories people are telling and so on. But I think this is interesting. It's sort of like a V0 of a metaverse. So if anybody also, I mean, one of the first concepts of being able to, to VR your way into a 3D environment interact with the world was coined by uh, in the, the book Snow Crash by Neil Stevenson in the early 90s. And so you're seeing, you see a lot of pop culture references to this. In fact, Snow Crash, I believe, is going to be a, like an HBO series or something soon. I can't wait for that. But yeah, VR chat, it's ridiculous. I can see a business version of this taking off. It's kind of like a second life. It's very chill, set in VR. And uh, yeah, it's pretty fascinating. So do you know what I can see coming out of there? In, in large uh, enterprise sales, uh, you've got the executive briefing center where you, you, know, you fly into New York or San Francisco and you get the gold, the white glove treatment to see all our cool technology or at SAP or whatever. Um, do that virtual. I mean, that, that would be an interesting uh, experience. But, well, Matt, don't you dabble in that a little bit? Don't you have something kind of similar to this? Sam, thank you. Yeah, SaaS sales leadership, we're experimenting with this in a sort of a 2D slash 3D experience where instead of going to Zoom, you come to our virtual Las Vegas campus, which uh, people are loving. My favorite thing I noticed is we have a virtual uh, classroom with, say, 25 seats in it. And you tell people, take a seat. Uh, which you don't even have to tell them. You know, they go in the room and they they move themselves, which is a little circle with a, their face in it, like a video, onto a seat. And what's really funny, just like in real life, no one immediately sits next to one another. They all leave a gap in between. Like that sort of social contract you have where it's a bit weird. If I don't know you, I would sit straight next to you. It's hilarious. But anyway, that's for another time, Sam. And I think we're out of time, my friend. I think so too, Matt. This has been fun. Wrapping up another Sassy Thoughts podcast. We're going to see you in a week. Sam, have a fabulous weekend, uh, week ahead. And uh, let's find some more cool stuff to talk about next week. That sounds good. Call me, Mark. 